From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. With all the snow Colorado's getting, there's a burning, or maybe freezing, question. Does early season snowfall correlate with the rest of the season? Meaning, if we get a lot of snow in October, does that mean we'll have a great season? We'll get the answer from meteorologist Joel Gratz of Open Snow. Plus, tips for winter driving, especially if you feel confident in an SUV. Then, why Denver might create its own transportation department. And later, Neil Young gave him his first big break. Fifty years later, guitarist Nils Lofgren reunites with his oldest musical family in a Telluride studio. There's something about that open space and the clean air. And of course, you know, the crux of it all, 50-year-old friends and great musicians that I've gotten to work with on and off through the decades. Where have you been, my long-lost friend? We haven't talked since we met. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I checked out a weather map of Colorado today. It looks like someone spilled Pepto-Bismol all over the state, because pink is how the National Weather Service indicates a winter storm warning. A warning, of course, that has very much come to fruition. It's in place through tomorrow at noon. So what does this mean for slopes and snowpack? We're going to ask meteorologist Joel Gratz of Open Snow, who is sounding positively giddy. Well, it's wonderful, (laughs) first off, to have this much snow in October, and I think of it in two ways. One, of course, we are an arid, dry state here in Colorado, so snow eventually will turn into water, so this is wonderful. Every flake helps. And two, for skiers, snowboarders, uh, everybody who loves snow to play in the mountains, uh, we already have three mountains open, Keystone, Arapahoe Basin, and Loveland. And there's plenty of snow to enjoy for backcountry skiers. There's already plenty of pictures and video. What about avalanche risk? Yeah, absolutely. So the old saying is if there's enough snow to ride, there's enough snow to slide. So it's something to consider, even though it's October and we all want to get up there and enjoy the powder, think about avalanche risk, look at CIIC, which is Colorado Avalanche Information Center. And remember, it is only October. There is a base depth of roughly around 18 inches in a lot of spots, which is enough to cover grassy areas, but there's still going to be plenty of rocks and down trees out there. So don't let the season end early by being too aggressive this early. Is this snowfall benefiting this state equally throughout or are some places drier than others? So the last couple of storms we've had have benefited the northern two-thirds or so of Colorado, so roughly from Aspen and I-70 north. Uh, These areas are anywhere from 200 to 300 percent of average snowpack. Now, those numbers sound amazing, but we are very early in the season, and the denominator is small, so a couple big storms make the numbers look good. But nonetheless, it is good. In the southwestern part of Colorado, uh, we're at anywhere between about 40 and 90 percent of average, and that sounds bad, but again, we're very early season, and one storm can kind of change all of that. But these last couple of storms have absolutely benefited the northern half to two-thirds of Colorado. Okay, so it sounds like uh, areas around the Four Corners, Durango, Telly ride and maybe, I don't know, I think of like even Wolf Creek uh, might be a little drier than usual. That's exactly right, with numbers 40 to kind of 90% of average snowpack so far. But again, we are early season, and it takes about one or two good storms for numbers to be well above average. So none of this is overly exciting or overly concerning to me when it comes to the season at large. 
but I'll throw in one little tidbit okay. because people ask me this all the time. Does early season snowfall correlate with the rest of the season? Meaning if we get a lot of snow in October, does that mean we'll have a great season or yeah. vice versa? And the answer, unfortunately, is no. We have no idea. There is zero correlation, basically, between snowfall in October and snowfall during the rest of the season. So mm. we can we can hope for goodness, but this shouldn't be too exciting or too concerning, depending on where you live in the state. Uh, we'll just enjoy this early season snow. That is to say, in the past, we have seen really snowy Octobers, followed by some snowy years and some very dry years. You know, I tend to hear people talk about how some snow is wetter than other snow. Well, every storm is different. So unfortunately, in meteorology, there are very few generalizations. What I'll say is that the quality of the snow or the powderiness or the wetness of the snow is generally related to temperature. So colder storms will bring powdery, drier snow, and uh, warmer storms will bring thicker, wetter kind of snowman-making snow, snowball-making snow. And we've kind of had all over the storms all over the map so far this year. And in fact, the second part of this week's storms, today, Tuesday, and then Wednesday, will be very cold. <laughs> so it will not be snow that will easily be made into snowballs. Uh, it'll be pretty powdery and potentially even record-setting cold. So again, no big generalizations uh, in meteorology work all the time, and that's definitely one of them. Can you remember an October this snowy? Put it into some perspective for us. I have looked across the state, and we are near record territory for uh, the South Platte River Basin, so areas, kind of mountains you can see from Denver, also up the Yampa and White River Valleys, uh, up around Steamboat, near record territory. But from a statewide perspective, we're above average, but not, not a record. All right. Well, before we go, have you been out skiing yet? Absolutely, and the powder is lovely. <laughs> Joel, thanks so much. You bet. Thanks for having me. Joel Gratz, founding meteorologist at Open Snow. Now from skiing to the sport of driving and how to do it safely in the winter, Mark Cox heads the Bridgestone Winter Driving School in Steamboat Springs. Besides staying off the road, his top tip? Look far enough ahead. It takes four to ten times longer to stop on ice and snow than it does on dry pavement. So as a driver, you have to look that much farther ahead and increase your following distance so that you're able to respond within that four to ten times longer window. Four to ten times longer? I can imagine the driver behind you getting enormously frustrated if you're leaving ten times the car lengths between you and the next car. Absolutely, and people tend to try to fill that space, but the reality is that's the margin that's required when the surface is slippery. How important is four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive? You know, it's really handy, but a lot of people gain a false sense of confidence because they mash the gas pedal and the car leaps forward because four wheels are pulling, not two, and they don't spin, so it overcomes driver error. So they instantly assume that all-wheel drive corners and stops that much better as well, and that's not the case. It doesn't matter how many wheels propel the vehicle forward when it comes to braking or cornering. Hmm. So all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive is doing very little for you when it comes to the stopping, which is ever so important. It's absolutely no different than a rear-wheel drive or a front-wheel drive. And in some cases, you could actually make the case that it's worse because an all-wheel drive vehicle is a little heavier, so it's more mass to stop. Is there any new technology on cars that is making winter driving safer? 
You know, I, I wouldn't say that it's making winter driving safer. I would say that there are, are a lot of electronic aids that step in when the driver makes a mistake. Okay. And really, all the technology in cars today can't overcome poor driving. You know, I keep my eye on the outside temperature. There's a reading on my dashboard of that. Seeing when it's cold enough that ice can form. Is there a temperature that you look out for as, you know, a a threshold to say, gosh, I really have to drive differently? Absolutely. Within about four degrees on either side of freezing is, is the most slippery time on the road. No question. It's interesting that rubber, as in a tire, actually sticks to ice pretty well if you can get rid of the, the water between the ice and the tire. And when it's very cold, say below zero, there really is no water in the snowpack. So tires stick pretty well to very cold ice and snow. But as you get near freezing, there's a layer of water that develops, and that acts as a lubricant between the ice and the rubber, and that's when it becomes most slippery about four degrees either side of freezing as it comes up to freezing or down to freezing. 28 to 36 degrees, then, is that threshold. If I have, say, a few hundred dollars, not much more than that, to invest in any kind of accessory for my car, add-ons, what would you advise? You know, for winter conditions, snow tires, or at least the best all-season tires that you can get if you don't travel in snowy areas that much. And having said that, you have to remember that a half-worn snow tire gives you the performance of a new all-season tire, and a half-worn all-season tire gives you the performance of a summer tire. And a summer tire has no place on icy or snowy roads, none. Sometimes the best thing, safest thing to do is just stay off the road. Mark Cox leads the Bridgestone Winter Driving School in Steamboat Springs. Be safe out there. If a gunshot were to ring out in your neighborhood and nobody reported it, you might still find Denver police responding quickly. That's because the department uses what's called Shot Spotter. It's a network of sensors that detects gunshots and alerts authorities. The system is in use in Denver's high-crime neighborhoods. But does this make people safer? Well, a group called the Urban Institute recently did a study of three cities, including Denver, with this technology. And we're going to talk through the results with Denver Police Commander James Henning. He oversees the use of ShotSpotter. And Commander, thanks for being with us. Glad to do it. So the study I mentioned evaluated ShotSpotter's performance when it was first implemented in 2015 and 2016. Arrests for any crimes involving the use of firearms as well as violent gun crimes, uh, specifically increased. That's presumably a good thing, right? You want to arrest shooters, but overall crimes were up as well. So can can we say ShotSpotter is making a difference in Denver? Yes, definitely. Um, as we've worked our way through, we're, you know, when they did this study three or four years ago, we were really in kind of our infancy of utilizing the system and then how we integrate it with other uh, technologies and investigative techniques. Um, and, and we're really refining those methods now. So the advantages of having ShotSpotter um, in a lot of ways are immeasurable. Um, and some some ways they are. We can measure the advantages we're getting. So, 
Indeed, the Urban Institute says ShotSpotter is at its best when it is integrated into daily policing. It sounds like there was a ramp-up period for Denver. I want to sort of unpack some of the things you just told us there, but help us understand how ShotSpotter works, just in layman's terms briefly. So basically, ShotSpotter is a bunch of uh, microphones or sensors placed around the city. Um, And as as a gunshot goes off, they are constantly uh, searching for sounds that resemble shots in the in the city, and then they triangulate off of that. The computer system generates and says, "Yep, these sound like gunshots," and then that is forwarded to um, a, a center in California where it's quickly reviewed, make sure it's not car backfire or fireworks, and then it's sent back to the officers and to our dispatch with the exact location within about 25 meters, um, the location of where those shots were fired, along with a quick recording of that. So this all happens in probably 25 to 50 seconds. We get pinged back and our officers in the cars actually get notifications on their various devices and they can start heading heading that way towards that scene. And how often do you get an alert from ShotSpotter? Uh, the police are notified and you're on scene and there's the shooter waiting for you. <laughs> Actually, that's pretty rare. Uh, that's pretty rare. The The guys that are doing the shooting, um, they they will shoot and they will take off. So we get a lot of unlawful discharges of a weapon. Somebody's driving down the street or somebody's walking down the street and they crank off some rounds. Um, we have a lot of that type of thing. We also have shots fired into occupied structures, kind of your classic drive-by where somebody will shoot at a house. Uh, we do fairly regularly shoot show up and find victims that uh, have been shot and no one has called 911 yet and and we get there first so we can get them medical attention. Um, And some of the other advantages are when usually when there's shots fired, there's shell casings left behind. And this goes towards what you mentioned before. It's that that integrated process of investigation and ShotSpotter really feeds into what we, our NIBIN system, which is the uh, the National Integrated Ballistics Information Network. Um, and as we we gather those shell casings and we put those into NIBINs, which is basically a forensic examination. Because a shell, a shell casing is like a fingerprint. I mean, it, it tells you something about yeah. the gun. It, it it tells us exactly it will we can compare shell casings from across the city and we can tell if it was the same weapon used mm-hmm. across the city and we work with other uh, other police departments in the metro area and what's interesting is we can see how this weapon has been fired and is moving across the city and back and forth so it's really given us a, a good understanding of how uh, particularly criminal gangs and these groups will will pop up in various eight uh, areas around the city from weekend to weekend. How yeah. often does this turn into an arrest? Uh, fairly often. Um, when we 
when we respond, we place it in the NIBINs. It gives us a lot of information. And maybe that, uh, maybe that unlawful discharge from two months ago, we didn't have any leads on that. Uh, a lot of times we start knocking on doors. We go back the next day. We run um, metal detectors. We knock on doors. We talk to people. And uh, it's fairly common to have ring doorbell video of a vehicle driving away or of a suspect. Um, and then we start piecing that together. Mm. And because of Nibens, we know that the same weapon has been used at several different scenes. We've pieced together very extensive investigations and and taken some good good people off the street and made the place safer. What you're saying is that cameras that are often put up on porches uh, to avoid like the theft of Amazon packages actually winds up helping you in your investigations. What I'm really hearing here is that ShotSpotter is the beginning. Yes. And there's a lot of detective work that has to happen uh, after that. Very, um, very much so. And, yeah. and you said earlier that ShotSpotter had detected shots where someone had been shot. So can you mm-hmm. say concretely then that in Denver this has saved lives? Yes, definitely. Yeah. We we get to scenes. Sometimes there's just a graze. Sometimes um, sometimes we've unfortunately found homicide victims. But having that tool um, leads us to make an arrest sooner. It leads us to be able to see where um, retaliation may occur, and we can get ahead of that issue. Um, really, the the key to preventing gang retaliation. Um, is making a making a quick arrest, getting the perpetrator um, in jail. We have less than a minute, Commander. I'm just curious. Um, you know, I see signs that say photo enforcement in progress, right? And that's an indicator right. to a driver to slow down. Are there signs around Denver saying we have shot spotter, like where even its presence and knowing that it's there could be a deterrent? Just briefly. No, our our position is that uh, we don't want to tip off where the areas of town where these sensors are, um, because it's as a as a deterrent. We don't want to deter people to go to some other neighborhood and okay. do it. We okay. want people to understand that if they're cranking off rounds in Denver, if they're they're involved in these criminal actions, that we're using every investigative technique we can to come and find them and figure out a way to bring them into the criminal justice system. Denver Police Commander James Henning oversees the department's use of shot spotter gunshot detection technology. You don't have to live in Denver to be affected by its transportation issues, from finding a parking spot to getting around on light rail or mapping a bike-friendly route. So it is notable that the city wants to create a new Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. Voters will decide if that's the right route this election. David Sachs is covering the issue for Denverite, which is a part of CPR News. Hi, Dave. Hey, Ryan. So right now, Denver Public Works handles how people move around the city. How does creating a new transportation department improve the situation? I mean, does it just shift responsibility to someone else? Well, the city says it's about priorities. Right now, the department that deals with sewers and recycling is the same one that's supposed to move people efficiently around the city. Hmm. Um, And so this new setup makes transportation the top issue. Uh, It would actually demote public works. Uh, to a division within the new department. 
So the idea is that the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure could deliver street-level projects faster. It could also lead to a city-run transit agency. A city-run transit agency is going to be my next question. I mean, would this mean an end to RTD, like at least in Denver? Uh, Not necessarily. The city wants to play a bigger role in public mass transit, which is a major reason for the proposed change. Um, Denver has the greatest population density and the largest job center in the region, but it shares the regional transportation district service with the suburbs and exurbs. Um, So one way to speed up transit is to uh, paint bus lanes, which the city has complete control of, for instance. Um, So the city could technically operate its own transit system if voters approve the charter change. Um, They could also operate uh, transit in conjunction with RTD. And I actually just learned yesterday that they could operate their own bike share network, for instance, or contract with the company to do that. Wow. Okay. Uh, I just want to say we've been reporting on RTD's problems. A, A driver shortage for the agency means some spotty service. Now, the city insists that this restructuring would save money in the long run. Uh, it also plans to devote more people to working on transportation solutions. Is that right? Yeah, so the consolidation will save an estimated $7 million annually, according to city documents. Um, the proposal comes after more than three years of discussion, and it sort of puts Denver in the same league as major cities like Chicago, New York, D.C., um, all of which have transportation departments. Oh. Um, yeah, so right now Public Works has about 120 people in its transportation division, but um, Executive Director Ulysses Cleckley told them right early, earlier this year that uh, the future goal is to have about 1,100 people working on transportation issues in one way or another. The mayor would appoint the department's director, and it would be a cabinet-level position. You mentioned this comes after years of discussion. I remember, gosh, five years ago, the city experimented with bike lanes down a half-mile stretch of one of its busiest streets, Broadway. I I suppose the city could just build upon that, right, without needing a separate transportation department? (laughs) Well, one reason it's taken so long is because of politics. Uh, Reorganizing streets to cater to more types of travelers is prickly uh, when they've catered to cars for so long, like Broadway. Um, So when the mayor was reelected, he told me he feels less restricted because it's his final term um, to do things like this. So the new department is supposed to streamline the work. If Hancock's decisions are the software, the transportation department is the hardware. Uh, Meantime, I understand about 70 percent of people living in Denver commute solo by car. Right. So the city's hoping uh, if it provides other options, they can get more people out of their cars. Uh, the reorganization will supposedly streamline projects like the Broadway bike line, like the Broadway bike lane, like I was saying earlier, um, and bus lane projects and get them to reality more rapidly. The Denver Streets Partnership, which advocates for walkability, bikeability, transit, they think a transportation department will help reduce traffic deaths. Is there any pushback, though, to this ballot question just in the last few seconds? Uh, there- You know, there's no organized opposition. Some say it'll just sort of add another drawer to a large bureaucracy, uh, but no organized opposition. Fascinating. David, thanks for the perspective. I appreciate it. No, thank you for having me, Ryan. David Sachs of Denverite, part of CPR News. Denver voters will decide referred question 2A in the November election, which creates a Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. Election Day is next Tuesday. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with legendary guitarist Nils Lofgren. This is CPR News. 33 states have signed on to this grand experiment in public health called medical marijuana, something pharmacies can't carry and doctors can't talk to their patients about. 
So it ends up looking a lot like any other retail business. But here's the rub. There's not a lot of money to be made on medical marijuana anymore. So where does that leave patients who are on the medical marijuana registry? Find out on the season finale of On Something, wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's hard to know even where to begin this interview with legendary guitarist Nils Lofgren, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Springsteen collaborator, a crazy horse for Neil Young, pal to the late Tom Petty and Lou Reed. Maybe we start with Colorado. That's the name of the new Neil Young album, Lofgren's on it. They recorded at Studio in the Clouds outside Telluride. Nils, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. How do you feel about Colorado? I'm going to let you answer whether that's the album or the state you respond to. Well, they both mean a lot to me. My wife, Amy, who is from West Orange, New Jersey, originally settled in Colorado as a professional cook in Boulder, in Georgetown, Denver. And probably about, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago, we started going to Telluride from Scottsdale, where I live now with Amy. Um, She took skiing lessons and became a great skier. I'm still a very average beginner snowboarder. (laughs) But we started going yearly for about 15 years, actually, up to Telluride. We fell in love with the town and the people. So uh, going back to Telluride to record a record with pretty much my oldest musical family, uh, Neil and Crazy Horse, who I walked in on 50 years ago this last May at the cellar door on their first tour. So I have a lot of fond memories of Telluride as a town. It was great to go back there for a couple weeks to work on this uh, new album, Colorado. Yeah, to Studio in the Clouds, located on 90 acres near Telluride. How does a space like that inspire during the recording process? Like, I wonder if this album would have worked if it had been made in Hollywood or New York. Well, of course, with my (laughs) understandable prejudice being in the band, I think it would have worked anywhere, but I think it worked best uh, and brought a comfort level, certainly to Neil, because he just took a drive from him and Daryl's home to the studio. And in general, the the setting, uh, the studio literally in the clouds, uh, the beautiful scenery, the mountains of Colorado, the big herds of animals coming across the street, beautiful sunsets. I forget it was called a pink moon or something, but there was... No matter what we were doing, we'd usually stop and go out for 20 minutes and just watch the sunset, watch the moon come up. There's something about that open space and the clean air, all beautiful wood studio, a lot of ancient instruments everywhere. Mm. And of course, you know, the crux of it all, 50-year-old friends and great musicians that I've gotten to work with on and off through the decades. We heard the warning calls, ignored them. Watched the weather change, we saw the fires and floods, we saw the people rise, dividing, we fought each other while we lost our coveted pride. There's so much we did. And we know 
Green is Blue, which I think is just a haunting, gorgeous song about climate change. Certainly we recorded Colorado in a beautiful, pristine part of the country where there is clean air and there still is nature and beauty. But uh, it's sadly disappearing on the planet. And of course, Daryl Hannah, Neil's wife and Neil are very active and have been for decades and being champions for climate change and just, you know, the rights of animals, plants, life, trees, all the good things that we're destroying. And uh, I think Green is Blue is one of the great pieces I've ever heard to speak to that. We watched the species die. We saw the coral turning. We watched the oceans rise. We saw the pot of whales lay bloated on the shore. I just want to pick up on something you said a bit earlier, that Neil Young and Crazy Horse feel like a musical family to you. You know, families get along, families fight. How is that family relationship? Well, for me, it's it's just been a beautiful on and off ride for over 50 years. I was 17 and freshly on the road uh, with my band Grin in 1968, not knowing what I was doing. I would sneak backstage a lot and ask for advice. I went to see Neil Young and Crazy Horse on their very first tour. I walked in on their dressing room at the cellar door. The cellar door in Washington, D.C. Right. And uh, they were doing a run of shows there. Fortunately, Neil handed me a guitar, let me sing some songs I'd written for the first Grin record, and he liked them. And to my surprise, he uh, said, why don't you hang out with us for a couple days? Got me a cheeseburger and a Coke and a table to watch four great shows over two nights. And it's led to a lot of chapters in the last 50 years I've been really, you know, grateful to be part of. You know, hearing you tell that story, it makes me think that such a thing is so much less likely to happen today. Do you think that's true? In some respects, I do think it's true. Back then, it was kind of the Wild West of early rock and roll. There were dressing room doors that were guarded by a bouncer at all times. And there was no video. uh, There was no internet. There were no cell phones. So there was more of a human touch and human contact. I can't say it could never happen for a young person, but I I think I was blessed in that time as the music business was exploding with the renaissance of the 60s and in every way and every genre. There was less of a formality to it all be harder to see that happening in this day and age. Now, with the release of Colorado, there is also a kind of making of film that goes along with it. It's called Mountaintop. I want it up as loud as it can go without feeding. I want to hear the thing. Neil has promoted it on social media saying, it's a wild one, folks, no holds barred. You'll see the whole process just as it went down, warts and all. I'm very curious, Niels Lofgren, about the warts. Well, I I had a conversation uh, last week uh, with Neil about that, and he was lamenting. <laughs> uh, first of all, he wanted people to see what actually happened, not polish it all up nice and smooth, which has been Neil from the day I met him, very honest and sincere. 
Now, I have not seen the movie. I've seen the trailer, but oh. as he put it to me personally, he said, um, you know, I'm kind of a jerk a lot of the times. He was kind of amazed. And, and all the years I've worked with Neil, I never saw it that way. I just saw it as an impatience where you, you know, you show up with these great songs, you show up, the singer's ready, you have the band, and then you run into obstacles, whether it's... We tried to record live where Neil sang through a PA, and we all played in the room. Everything was leaking into each other. Huh. Most of the times we tried not to use headsets, just like playing in a bar through a PA. But, you know, logistically, that's not that easy, song to song to set up. So sometimes we'd all get impatient, and uh, I guess Neil, warts and all, what he means is you're going to see the impatience and the frustrations and realize it's just not all fun and games. Turn this thing off. If this is all you can do, I don't need it. No, no, yeah, uh, this is one time when I want you guys to just go bang and we're doing it. Do it okay. right on Neil's vocal mic. Check. One, two. Louder. There's a rainbow of colors in the old USA. No one's gonna watch. The sound of it is like family. It's like listening to family make music together. It's intimate. It's interactive. I think of one of my favorite tracks on the new album, Colorado. It's called Eternity. Uh, sounds like you're having some fun uh, as you listen to this song. Why don't you set it up for us? Well, Eternity, uh, we were talking about the demos and Eternity came up and I mentioned that uh, it's a very happy song and hopeful, and Neil gets to this chorus where he goes clickety-clack, clickety-clack, talking about a train going over some rickety train tracks. And um, 10 years ago, I had both hips replaced, too much basketball and you know trampoline and craziness on stage. So I picked up tap dancing, and I just commented at the dinner table, yeah, every time I heard the demo for Eternity and I get to the clickety-clack part, I'd jump out of my seat and start tap dancing. And we all had a laugh <laughs> about it. But I just offhandedly mentioned, yeah, I brought my tap board. So the next day, we're in uh, the studio, and everyone's like, what do you want to do, Neil? And he said, tell you what, we're going to do Eternity and uh, get Nils ready, he's going to be tap dancing. And the look on the engineers' faces was priceless because they've done a lot of sessions with Neil, but I think this might have been the first time where someone in the band was setting up to do a tap dancing part. <laughs> and it was quite hilarious and just indicative of the freedom of expression Neil has and the wide open, like, hey, whatever's happening or you feel at the time, let's go for it and not think about it. So uh, I got to do, you know, I've waited 50 years, but I finally got to do a tap dancing session on a Neil Young record, and it was worth the wait. Woke up this morning in a house of love Oh, fortunate me I hope we're living in a house of love For eternity Nils Sofgren, what is an example of the behavior on stage you did as a younger man that led to your hip problems? 
Well, way back, uh, I hit the road in 1968, and we opened for every band under the sun. Grin played everywhere with every one. And I didn't have much, I wasn't much of a performer the first couple years. I just closed my eyes and concentrate on playing and singing. Anyway, I went to my, I was a gymnast in junior high. I went to my old gymnastic teacher and asked him to help me learn to do a backflip while I played the guitar on a little mini tramp. And he taught me how to do it because when you're holding a guitar, it removes your upper body, which you use to throw your arms back for the torque. Anyway, I started doing it in the show. And it was an enormous visual hit, and people loved it. And it's just something, you know, I came up with early on. So even after I started being uninhibited and jumping around and dancing a lot, I would keep that in the show. And it was a great bit. Lasted a long time. I fell a bit, got bruised up, but fortunately never went to the hospital behind it. And that's kind of how it started, thanks to my old gymnastic teacher. So I want to do a bit of a flip myself. Um, and talk about your other new project. This year, you also released a solo record called Blue with Lou, which features some songs that you co-wrote with the late Lou Reed. Why did you decide to revisit the material? Well, years ago, Lou and I had written 13 songs together, and he immediately used three of them on the Bells record. I used three and put out two subsequently with Lou's Blessing. And of course, I always thought the others that no one ever heard. Maybe Lou and I would look at together someday, and sadly, we lost Lou. And once Lou had passed, I realized that next time I made a record, I really just couldn't leave the unheard songs sitting in the in the basement, if you will. I needed to get them out and arrange them and get them on a new record to share because it was a very special collaboration. More with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nils Lofgren after a break. The latest album from Neil Young and Crazy Horse is called Colorado, recorded near Telluride. When we come back, we ask Lofgren to pick a favorite child, or band leader. Neil Young or Bruce Springsteen? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR's active community of support has allowed CPR News to increase coverage of our state, CPR Classical to reach more of Colorado, and Indy 1023 to deliver the best in new and local music. Thank you. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's rejoin the conversation with guitarist Nils Lofgren. He's on the new album Colorado from Neil Young and Crazy Horse. They recorded it earlier this year at Studio in the Clouds near Telluride, Elevation 9000. The album and companion documentary are out now. Lofgren also released a new solo record this year, Blue with Lou, which includes some songs he co-wrote with the late Lou Reed. Nils Lofgren is celebrating 50 years in music, a career that really started when Neil Young gave him his first big break, inviting a teenage Lofgren to sit in on the recording of After the Gold Rush. Lofgren calls Neil Young and Crazy Horse his oldest musical family. But it's Lofgren's work with a different band that he may be best known for. So I just had to ask him about his other boss, the boss.
you joined the E Street Band in 1984 as Bruce Springsteen was hitting superstardom with the success of Born in the USA. I'm curious how you'd compare and contrast Neil and Bruce as like band leaders. Well, interestingly enough, there's a lot of a lot more similarities between Neil and Bruce than there are differences. Other than, of course, the sound of their guitar playing and their voices, you know, you've got two of our greatest writers in history, and they both really give the bands freedom. They surround themselves with musicians that they trust, that understand their music. So they give you a freedom. A lot of times, you know, they won't even suggest an instrument. They'll just let you pick up what you're hearing and want to hear your input first. It's just a natural feel with both of them that you get that uh, there's plenty of room for being loose and being a little reckless. In fact, they kind of prefer that. And in general, neither one of them really like the over-rehearsed, over-produced stuff, although they've both done some beautiful, you know, very precise production. In general, when they're playing live and, and even in the studio, uh, they're looking for something more immediate and emotional. Nils Lofgren, who would win in a battle of the bands, Crazy Horse or E Street Band? Ah. <laughs> oh, man, you got, you, you're not seriously expecting an answer from me. I, uh, oh, they'd I'm be tie, They'd be tied serious. for first place, <laughs> and I'd walk away with two trophies. <laughs> oh, your, how's that for an that's answer? That's a great answer. <laughs> okay, we've talked about Neil Young, Bruce Springsteen, Lou Reed. Gosh, it sounds like the making of Rock and Roll's Mount Rushmore. Let's bring in another great. Uh, this is in reference to your new solo record. Tell me about Dear Heartbreaker. Yeah, Tom Petty, one of my musical heroes. Way back in 77, I was uh, touring England, and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, who I had, wasn't aware of, became my opening act for five weeks. And I was stunned at what a great band they were. This is before Damn the Torpedoes hit, and probably one of the one of the last tours they were an opening act but they came out and they were roaring and it actually made me and my band you know kicked our butt a bit and kept us on our toes but we both held our own and i've been a fan ever since uh, my wife amy of 23 years is as big a fan as i and we went up to denver we saw them at red rocks which was amazing it rained it thundered they sent the audience away they pulled the band off stage and we all got to go back out after the storm broke and, you know, as always, it was an amazing show. I had a nice visit with the band who I've, you know, known through these decades. And uh, when we lost Tom, almost to the day, Amy and I would wake up and we'd have a cursing session about how enraged and sad we were that Tom Petty had died. And this went on for months. We were very sh just shook up. And uh, when I wrote this record... One day I started just in my own little head, a little verse to Tom, you know, because sometimes I went through this with the Beatles where you stop listening to the music, you're so upset John Lennon died, and then I'm like, what the hell is that, man? This is the greatest body of work ever recorded, and you go back to it. And I started doing that with Tom a bit, and I said, no, I've been through this, I'm not doing it again. I wrote a little four-line thing to Tom, I'm not backing down, your music. And every day, I didn't intend for it to be a song. It was just a little mantra to Tom's spirit. And I, another verse came, another verse came, and I kept writing them down. 
once I had five verses, I knew I had to share the song. It's just uh, dedicated to Tom and the Heartbreakers for all the great music they've given us. And the body of work is still here to inspire us. I listen to it a lot, even though it's just such a tragedy we lost him so young. Still he's not backing down And the music lights our souls No, he's not backing down Spirit singing from Is there anyone you have not worked with that you'd like to? Well, you know, through the years, I've gotten to play with so many greats almost by accident. Uh, most of the people I'd like to play with are not here, like, you know, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, you know, Sam Cooke, people like that, uh, Etta James. Look, when I started 50 years ago, when I was 17, 51 years ago now, I would have never been this greedy to think, you know, 51 years later, I'd be playing in all these great bands and have such a great career and get to play with so many people. Uh, I've been blessed to play with so many through the years, and there'll probably be some more surprises ahead, God willing. Since we back when And how is life with your new love I hope she's something from above Something happened yesterday Listening to Neil on this album, Colorado, it got me thinking about all these tracks I've been hearing in the last few years from incredible artists who are late in their careers. So there's this beautiful version of Both Sides Now that Joni Mitchell did with a symphony orchestra. I mean, that's probably amazing. A, yeah. Yes. Petula Clark did this version of Downtown with her older voice, and it, it just takes on a haunting quality. You know, Bruce Springsteen has this film out, this kind of documentary concert that is an exploration of his life, and it's him laid bare vocally. I think that Neil Young, who has always sounded authentic and warm and gentle in his singing, is even more charming now. Are you making room to celebrate how you sound later in your career? Yes, I think uh, in particular, after 50 years now, long ago I... I used to, as a kid, I wanted to sound like Paul Rogers or Rod Stewart or Muddy Waters, and I kept trying to, you know, be gruff and hoarse, and I finally grew into the voice I have and realized, hey, I'm not that voice. Take what you've got and make the most of it. So I've I've long started just trying to embrace what God gave me, and this new record in particular, I, I did also sing it live in the room with the bass player and drummer, no isolation boost. We were just looking at each other, everything was leaking into each other. And I did enough rehearsing so where I could sing live in the room. And there's an immediacy that comes from, you know, and a confidence you should have after 50 years on the road 
to believe in yourself and do enough rehearsing so that when you're there with the groups, you can really shine. And, um, you know, Neil's an extreme version, uh, way back to after the gold rush and everything else of keeping things very immediate. In fact, when we did Tonight Tonight, one of the themes was we're going to do completely live. No one can fix a note. You're going to be singing and playing at the same time, and we don't want you to learn the songs too well. And that's how we approach that record. And it's a very unusual, dark, rough take on what Neil wanted to share. It's like, how is it when the musicians don't play it so many times, they have, here's my riff for the verse, here's my riff for the chorus, and they're just responding with an immediacy and a soulful emotion to each other, not really knowing what they're going to play and not being able to play it again the same way. And that's a beautiful, courageous thing that I think Neil's always striven for, strove for, whatever that correct word is. <laughs> Thanks for making all this happen again. Nils, thanks for being with us. Uh, good luck in becoming a better snowboarder. Yeah, thank you. And God bless all the citizenry of Colorado and uh, Telluride in particular for always welcoming me and my wife, Amy, and all the beautiful dogs and animals that would come visit us when we were walking the streets. And uh, we'll be back. Thank you. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer guitarist Nils Lofgren. The new album Colorado from Neil Young and Crazy Horse is out now. They recorded it at Studio in the Clouds near Telluride, where Lofgren and his family like to vacation. Michael Hughes produced this segment. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Ask all the same questions I do.